You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Welcome to our honored guest for tonight. Rabbi Feldman started Tribe Tel Aviv, and thankfully he chose me to come on board along with him. And at first I was just supposed to do marketing, but then I said, Rabbi Feldman, let me host these events. And it's and he's taken a strong faith in me and we're doing this together. Rabbi Feldman is originally from Manhattan. He's been in Israel for about two years. He lives here with his family and he is a rabbi that goes on an electric scooter and brings his helmet with him everywhere. He's really a Tel Avivi even though he lives in a sleeper town. So Rabbi Feldman, without further ado, take it away. Thank you, Shanna. Thank you, Shanna. Let's see with the Moses. And uh, I'm gonna turn off my Facebook so that we don't get an echo. Um, and welcome, David. Uh, we're very pleased to have David Gansberg here tonight. Uh, and tonight we're gonna be talking about the new Zionist identity. Can we bridge the diaspora-Israel divide? And uh, there's so much to unpack here, which I'll let you guys do as soon as I give you a little background about David. David is Associate Professor of Judaic Studies at the University of Arizona. He is a historian in Jewish identity in the mid, from the Middle Ages to the modern era. I know he's done a lot of work on what we call the Moranos and uh, Iberian Peninsula. His first book, Souls in Dispute, explored the identity of the New Christians, a.k.a. Conversos, or Anusim, who we used to call Moranos, uh, who became Jews in exile in Spain in the 1600s. His second book, which we're going to be focusing on more, is The New Zionist, and explores the dynamics of Zionist identity and construction among American Jewish millennials. And uh, David is from Mexico originally. So, uh, you know, we bring that into the mix as well. And David, we're pleased to have you here. Thank you very much. And um, I'll give you back over to Shanna, who will be, uh, who will be uh, leading our um, discussion tonight with you. So. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, so um, first of all, I'm going to just say a little bit about myself. My name is Shanna Fold. I am the host of the Sunset Series, but I am also a reporter and news presenter here in Israel, which is a blessing that I get to do what I love while also living in the place that I love. So I am going to be doing what I do the best, which is hosting an interview, hosting this interview style. Sometimes we let our speaker go and just talk, and then we have a Q&A at the end, but this time we're going to turn this into a um, interview. Now, I wanted to ask, Professor, um, I want to see you, okay, looking at you. Um, have you lived in Israel before? Uh, first of all, let me say thank you for having me. Thank you for the nice introduction, Rabbi Feldman. And Shana, feel free to call me David. Uh, whenever I hear uh, the phrase, Mr. Graysbert, Dr. Graysbert, Professor Graysbert, I think of my father who's in the other window right below me. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that's on me. I'm David. So uh, the question. Uh, yes, I've lived in Israel. I was there as a student uh, when I was in college. I, I went to the Hebrew University. And uh, since then, I've uh, lived for short periods in, in Israel when I lead uh, a program, uh, a summer program for students at my university. 
we, uh, we bring them to Israel to visit various places, but primarily to take courses in uh, Jewish and Israeli cultures. Amazing. So how was your time in Israel? Was it a culture shock for you? Yes and no. Uh, you know, earlier you were uh, discussing the fact that you feel at home in Israel and yet you still feel a sense of being not quite Israeli. Uh, so the same is true for me, right? In many ways, Israel uh, always felt very comfortable, very, uh, very familiar to me. But, uh, you know, immigrants have this experience, right? When you come from the United States or an Anglo, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an English-speaking country, you're an Anglo. When you uh, come from France, you're French and so forth. And of course, in, in your countries of origin, <laughs> in your country of origin, you are Jewish. So uh, I experienced some of that. Uh, I was always very proud when I was in uh, when I was living in Israel that some people told me, "Oh, you look like an Israeli," probably because I was kind of serious by American standards, and uh, I had my hair all messy and I wore clothes that weren't particularly fancy. So yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting that you brought up the serious part because I was actually speaking with somebody today and I remarked on the fact that from my personal experience, I've found that Americans are always the most uh, exuberant people in the room. From my experience, um, whenever I go anywhere, I find that the Americans are always the ones that are sort of loud. I guess Latinos too can be, especially when they're with other Latinos. Um, but that's interesting that you said people thought that you were Israeli because you had a little bit more of a serious uh, way about you. Right. I, I don't mean to suggest that Israelis don't have a sense of humor. In fact, they do. Uh, it's just that in their, let's say, in their, in their public behavior, they don't smile as much. Uh, at least not, you know, the, the tzabarim, tzabarot, uh, uh, I guess, uh, as well. Um, you know, the, 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 the standard image of, a, let's say, an American president is, is of somebody who's smiling, you know, very very optimistically. Uh, public culture in Israel isn't quite like that, but uh, there is a certain seriousness to it. And uh, I have to say that as far as exuberance goes, you cannot beat the Argentinians and the Chileans. That's, that's why I second it. I second round was actually Latinos too, but yes. <laughs> right. Um, that was very interesting, culturally very interesting. Um, now, you had a whole set of things that you wanted to go through, and I really want to make sure that I get all of your points in. Um, and let's start with the mastery of the conceptual language, and I want you to explain to us what you mean by conceptual language and core elements of Jewish nationality. I think that's a good uh, ground grounding to get us understanding where you're coming from. Sure. Okay. Uh, so first of all, let me say that it's perfectly fine if we don't cover all the points that I, that I, <laughs> um, I, I just want to make this stimulating. So what do I mean by conceptual language? Uh, so my book, $119 from uh, uh, Roman and Littlefield, uh, is, um, is a study of identity and specifically national identity. So my, one of my findings is that many American Jews, particularly those who find themselves uh, uh, attracted to, attached to Israel and to Zionism, are people who feel in their bones that uh, Jews constitute a people, right? And in their American, mostly American, um, let's say, context, they have been introduced to the, the concept of Jewish peoplehood. However, uh, at least my subject, who are usually young adults, did not know how to explain this to themselves and to others. Whenever I ask, for example, uh, an average group of my Jewish students, you know, what other than religion 
makes a Jew Jewish, they struggle. They start to rely upon things like, you know, latkes, locks, and bagels, which are, of course, Ashkenazic cultural items. They don't, they're not necessarily Jewish in a, in a, in a broad sense. And um, often they're related to religious practices. So, you know, you have, you know about latkes, let's say, if you're Ashkenazic and you celebrate Hanukkah, um, you know, with your family, right? So there the, the specter of religion comes in. And, you know, in order to, to, um, to uh, help my students uh, articulate, not just the, the Jewish students, mind you, but all my students, uh, what it is to be part of a people, I've come to rely upon anthropological uh, definitions of ethnicity, uh, which in some cases can be equated with nationality. So there are a couple of, uh, there are a couple of main, let's say, uh, items, main components that make up not just Jewish nationality, but all nationalities. One is the concept uh, or the reality of kinship. Another is memory. Another is um, a common culture. Another one is a sense of solidarity that, that exists between the members of the group. And, uh, you know, and, and there are others, right? But let's focus on those four. Kinship is something that can be physical or it can be merely uh, perceived or imagined. Now, if, if we were to go back uh, a number of, uh, of centuries, we may or may not find historical genealogical evidence that we're all related. It doesn't really matter. If we consider ourselves Jews, fellow Jews, yeah, that means that we share a concept of kinship. We recognize ourselves in each other and we perceive that we form part of something like an extended family, um, common culture. So uh, the American Jews whom I've encountered, the young American Jews I've encountered typically understand Jewish culture in quote unquote religious terms. And by that, they really mean, a, they really are referring to a concept of religion that's very American and therefore largely indebted to Protestant Christian notions. Uh, they're talking about theology, rites of worship, and perhaps uh, social ethics based on those, you know, on, on theological principles. That's a rather narrow conception, which I don't think does justice to, to, uh, to the culture of Jews, both traditional and modern. Um, we have what I like to call a comprehensive all-purpose culture, right? And traditionally, this culture does not uh, distinguish between the realms of the secular and the religious. And so uh, when, we, uh, when we speak of Jews as having a religion called Judaism, I think we're using a lot of the translated terms or the terms that, that other people have used to translate us into their world, yeah? And we have adopted them. Let's consider for a moment that in the Tanakh, uh, and for that matter in the rabbinic uh, um, uh, corpus, the rabbinic uh, literature, there really is no term for religion. Um, and the way of life that is outlined in that body of literature is not called Judaism. Religion is a Latin term. Judaism is a Greek term. So uh, what do we Jews call our culture? Surprisingly, we don't call it much of anything. There are some rabbinic uh, uh, phrases that 
approximate a definition like Torah, right? Living the life of Torah. But if, what if you're a Jew and you don't observe halakha? Does that mean that you're not Jewish? Well, not really. I would say that our, our, our culture or civilization is um, analogous to that of, let's say, the ancient Egyptians or even the modern Navajo. Uh, in other words, it's, it's a culture that, that introduces or, or that retains some traditional elements. It has some modern elements and, again, does not uh, um, compartmentalize away a sphere, a, a private sphere of religion. Um, okay, what uh, solidarity? Okay, that's another one of the factors, one of the uh, one of the conceptual, you know, bases of nationality. Uh, when you identify with somebody, you may agree with him or her, love him or her, or you know, contrarywise, be utterly repulsed by him or her. Okay, so we all have, let's say, an uncle who is a jerk. All right. Uh, who's a gangster, let's say. So we don't, we don't want to associate with Uncle Bob, right? Or Uncle Schloime. Uh, but we still feel that Uncle Schloime or Uncle Bob is part of us, right? And to the extent that Uncle Schloime or Uncle Bob suffers or is thrown in jail or whatever, we feel it viscerally, right? We may think that Uncle Bob or Uncle Schloime is fully deserving of a penal sentence. But we have a certain solidarity that goes beyond the behavior uh, and is prior to the behavior of Uncle Bob. So for example, when, uh, when American Jews say, oh, you know, I don't like Bibi Netanyahu. I don't like the, the, uh, the settlements. I, I want, uh, I don't know, I, 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 want, I want to pursue tikkun olam and, and you know, sort of forget about my nationality. Um, that's all well and good, but then to add to that, therefore, I don't think that Israel ought to exist or I completely divorce myself from Israel. That's a leap that shows a lack of solidarity, right? That, that speaks to a certain rift between the self-identity and the identity of the collective. I can keep uh, blabbing away, but I don't know, Shana, if you want to stop me or, or open this up to any 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 uh, comments? Well, I wanted to actually do something that we don't usually do, but we really have a nice intimate crowd of people who are really engaged here and I think might have some interesting things to say. What I really wanted to know was if people could offer their ideas of um, what they believe are the main differences between Israelis and diaspora Jews. Is that okay with you? That's great. Yeah, that's a great question. What, just to hear what people, people's perspectives, what they, what they, how they see the world. Um, Odelia, if you are listening to me, I would love for you to offer because I know that you are a spicy lady and you might have something interesting to say. But in the meantime, if you're not available, is did, would anyone else like to just thank jump you. on? Thank you for the compliment, Shanna. Now I feel I have to think of something very interesting, thing, eccentric to say, something spicy enough. I have it to doesn't think. have to be so spicy, but what do you think is the difference? What, what do you think is the difference between Israeli Jews and Jews from the diaspora? Wow. On the spot, on the spot. I think that I'm generalizing and on the spot, as I said, I think maybe um, 
There can be Jews that aren't Zionists outside of Israel that are traditional, that they feel a connection to being Jewish, but they can um, they cannot feel a connection to Israel or be aware that Israel exists, but not have any not follow anything political and not connect Israel and Zionism, just get on with their life in their Jewish community in their town, going to their synagogue events and liking that they have something in common with their with their friends in a in a more traditional or secular Jewish world. And then there can be very religious Jews that like to stay in their religious community and see Zionism as being a political agenda and far from Judaism. Wow. That's what I think I saw in London anyway, but I think everyone will have a different perspective. Okay, great. Thanks so much for sharing that. So that was great, Odelia. Thank you. So, um, David, moving on to another item that you, that you had uh, outlined is language. And you mentioned that even graduates of day schools and uh, yeshivas cannot speak conversational Hebrew. Tell us why that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, by reference to my book, I, I found that um, my subjects, especially those who are olim or who were contemplating aliyah when I interviewed them, Uh, understood Hebrew and appreciated Hebrew very much as a way to connect to contemporary Israeli culture, which has a lot of appeal, by the way, and we should talk about it. Uh, But I also uh, noticed that um, for these young people, I mean, young relatively, right, relative to me, um, Hebrew was not a way to connect to the wellsprings of of Jewish culture. in other words, it, to the extent that they understood, let's say, uh, the Tanakh or the liturgy, they really did not, um, you know, meditate upon either. And they, uh, they viewed a Hebrew in very sort of practical terms as, 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 as a, a means to an end, right? Whereas I think uh, one of the characteristics of the, uh, of the generations that built Israel, Dor uh, Habonim or Dor HaMeyastim, if you will, is that they connected with, with a Hebraic culture in a way that had a very strong historical and anthropological awareness, right? So you had a very secular people, let's start with uh, David Ben-Gurion, right? Who knew the Tanakh backwards and forwards, not because they believed the miracle tales or because they wanted to observe halakha strictly or at all, but because they saw the Tanakh as a kind of, as a, as a foundation stone, as a kind of a, as a basis, as a platform for their own relationship to the land of Israel and to the people Israel. So, uh, you know, this is kind of a cliche, but to the extent that you know your culture, you have to know it in its own terms. And the terms of Jewish culture, I don't mean the sub-ethnic Jewish cultures, the ones that, that, uh, that are articulated in in uh, Yiddish or Ladino or other sub-Jewish languages, right? But the, the uh, umbrella Jewish culture is very much a Hebraic culture. Let's consider, actually, I, I was reminded uh, through your question about something that, uh, that uh, a, a person told me, or actually I think she wrote this to me uh, as part of my research. Uh, she came to Israel and she said, um, 
Okay, I'm going to quote her. She said, in Israel, I realized that being Jewish is much more than Sunday Hebrew school, God, or keeping kosher. Judaism is about being part of something larger than yourself and meant being part of the national mishpacha. Now, why did she say mishpacha? Because the word itself has resonance that the word family does not. It's, it's, a, it's a source of, of intimate identification, right? So to the extent that Jews appreciate Hebrew, not just as a means to an end, not just as a way to hail a cab in Tel Aviv or party with Israelis, right? To, it, to the extent that they, they find in Hebrew a constitutive element of their present, their past, and their future, I think their sense of fulfillment will be that much greater and that much deeper. Shana, you spoke earlier about two aspects, right? One is feeling at home, and the other one is feeling fulfilled. I think feeling at home and feeling fulfilled can happen, and I think you re reflected on this as well, can happen only in Hebrew, right? Because if you speak Hebrew fluently, even with a thick accent, you are part of the mishpacha, right? And you feel a certain fulfillment in that you are at home, fully at home, both in your native land, in Timbuktu, and in the Jewish homeland. So I think that's why it's important to, to not only learn Hebrew, but appreciate it for, for all its, its historical and cultural depth. Um, I speak uh, a number of languages. I speak Spanish to my parents and so forth. And I know that there are concepts that simply cannot be translated. I mean, they have translations. You can look in a, in a dictionary, in a bilingual dictionary. But the, all the implications, all, the, all the, um, the, the centuries of experience, very specific experience that each word carries is not neatly translatable. For that reason, Jews have got to know themselves in their culture's own terms, namely in Hebrew. I think that that was so poignant and so important. And uh, it's, it's very special also because there's so much nuance in the Hebrew language and the roots of words that appear in other places and um, it was it was very cool. I also would be very frustrated in my Opan class when the teacher would miss an opportunity to uh, explain a word that we were learning that had some kind of a religious meaning or a historical meaning and I um, so I want to move on. You, you covered a lot so far but I want to ask you about um, something you talked about where the Jews in the diaspora are constantly proving themselves and constantly falling back on uh, the Jewish contributions to the world and trying to prove why we deserve a place at the table, for example. Can you talk to us about how that relates to the divide, the, the diaspora divide? Absolutely. Uh, no, this is a very important subject. Recently, you might have heard or read that Barry Weiss, of the, uh, formerly of the New York Times, left the newsroom of the New York Times um, uh, because it was very hostile to her as a Jew and as a Zionist. Subsequently, Barry Weiss uh, gave a speech, some sort of public uh, speech, in which she explained, quote unquote, why I am a Jew. And uh, I mean, I, I'm simplifying, I don't want to be unfair to her, but one of her main messages was that she is Jewish because Jews to her represent, quote unquote, lamp lighters to the world. In other words, Jews lead the way ethically, intellectually, uh, politically, and so forth, and that that's their value to, uh, to American civilization and to the world at large. Now, 
that's all well and good. I, I really don't want to, you know, to sound judgmental or anything like that, but it occurs to me that this, this, this logic that she pursues is part and parcel of what, to me, uh, amounts to Jewish insecurity in the diaspora. Let's consider the fact that Greek Americans don't constantly feel that they have to, let's say, to count the number of Greek, let's say, Nobel Prize winners and flaunt that number publicly. Uh, Irish Americans don't have to say that their traditional Irish culture is consonant with the principles of, let's say, of American liberalism. Uh, so the, the constant need to justify oneself in relation to the other, to show I am here, uh, I deserve to be a part of this society because I am good, because I am worthy, is I think, again, a, a sign of, of deep insecurity. If the enlightenment liberalism is worth its salts, is worth anything, then people belong to a, a political community by right, not because they're good, or because they're bad. So to the extent that Jews try to always prove we belong because we are good, they're essentially ac acceding to an anti-liberal position, according to which people who are not Anglos, let's say, have to prove their worthiness, have to explain themselves, and so forth. Actually, let's go back to my informant here, the same well, woman I just quoted. She said to me, quote, in Israel, I didn't need to prove to anyone that I am Jewish because I was surrounded by Jews, okay? That's what feeling at home is like, right? You are there because it is your right, because it is a natural part of your existence, not because you contribute anything, right? Um, incidentally, uh, it seems rather odd to me that it is, North American, particularly American, uh, that is to say U.S. Jews, who always appeal to their own goodness when other, uh, other ethnic groups, in fact, glorify uh, rather unsavory aspects of their, let's say, of their historical experience. Uh, I think, for example, of, of uh, Italian Americans, right, for whom the, the gangster has become a kind of... Um, a kind of euphemism for, uh, for Italian-American culture. Now, why should Italian-Americans be able to glorify Don Corleone and we not, you know, and we don't, we don't value, I don't know, um, uh, you know, um, what's his name? Um, Madoff? Bugsy, Bugsy Malone, or Madoff, right? Right, why, why do we have to be good? Um, if, if Zionism argues for, anything, as I think it argues for the normalization of Jews. And that entails the internalization of the idea that Jews can be good or bad. We're not better or worse than anybody else. We have the same rights and the same responsibilities as everybody else. Do you think that, do you think that that actually could be, um, do you believe that by Jews feeling that they need to be a light to the nations, that we are a light to the nations? And, would, and are you suggesting that we uh, take that identity away? Not at all. Uh, look, the, the idea that we, we are or ought to be me'or la goyim is deeply embedded in our culture. 
the, the question is how do we interpret that principle or that mandate, if we want to consider it that? And uh, the answer can vary, right? I mean, you can think that being a light to the nations means that you have to show the nations how to be moral. Uh, that's what I call the Jiminy Cricket uh, model of Jewish identity. You know Jiminy Cricket, right? The, uh, there's Pinocchio who wants to be a real boy. He's a wooden puppet, right? And then a, 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 a fairy uh, assigns to Pinocchio this kind of like guardian angel, a little cricket who's constantly admonishing uh, Pinocchio, uh, telling him how to be a responsible human being, okay? Now the problem with that understanding of Meor Lagoyim is that Jiminy Cricket is not a protagonist of the story. Jiminy Cricket is a two-dimensional character while the protagonist, the one who really has moral weight, is Pinocchio. Zionism proposes that Jews are Pinocchio and that the means to self-realization, to becoming, quote unquote, a real boy, are by assuming responsibility, right? Oneself and figuring out oneself. So, Meor uh, Lagoyim can mean, for example, you live your life as an Israeli citizen, or as a, let's say, as, a, as an American living in the United States, I, I mean, excuse me, living in Israel, contemplating Aliyah, or maybe not contemplating Aliyah. You belong to Am Israel. You participate in the, in the multi-millennial flourishing of that culture. And then people outside of Am Israel may or may not be inspired by that. I think that objectively speaking, there's much to inspire the nations about the Jews, right? Consider the fact that, you know, alone among the peoples, we've made it this far under terrible conditions, and we're a pretty proud and constructive people. But, you know, again, not to say that we're all that great. I don't need to prove that we're good. The point is, you can be a, a light to the nations naturally and unconsciously, or you can propose to yourself a kind of secondary role, a supporting cast role in the larger story of the real protagonist, quote unquote, namely humanity or Americans or the Palestinian Arabs or whoever. Uh, my understand, my reading of Jewish history as a historian is that Jewish civilization is built by and primarily for Jews. It does have very inspiring and very great universalistic dimensions, but it is fundamentally in all its core assumptions and all its core manifestations, it is a particularistic culture, right? It is about the in-group. Consider the, uh, the uh, statement that is supposedly the number one affirmation of Jewish faith actually assumes the, the Jewish nation, right? Shema Israel. Right? Adonai Elohei Nu, so there's a Nu, there's an, an us, right? And so it's not, you know, we are Jews because we believe X. We're a people and we have a culture. It's, again, for us and by us. Very interesting. This is going to be my last question for you. And in the meantime, I want everyone who's with us to please add into the chat your question. I see that I have some people who are chiming in, some people who are putting in their comments. 
Before I get to those, and I will read them if we have time, I just want everyone to put a real question in, make it one sentence and put a question mark on the end so that I, I'll know that this is a question and not a comment. So in the meantime, uh, my last question for you is, what do you say, and I'm gonna sort of uh, combine two things together. I think that depending on where, where you're coming in the world, uh, moving to Israel can actually be a sacrifice. So I wanna know if you can speak to that while also addressing a, a very simple question, which is how do you respond to an Israeli who meets you and says, oh, you're from the United States, what are you doing here? I would trade places with you in a minute. And yeah. I want to tell you that there have been times that I brought myself almost to tears defending my choice. And you know, you don't you don't know what you're gonna say until somebody asks you that and puts you up to the question. And then you're standing there and you're blabbering on about about why you're here. And right. again, and again, justifying your existence again in the only place that you're supposed to be justifiably here. So what how do you respond to that? Right. Uh, it, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, look, I live in the United States, so I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to assault Israelis who wish they did. Uh, that would be hypocritical. I would say the following: Israelis who have uh, lived in Israel their whole lives, who have paid taxes, who have served in in the in the army, or who have done national service, they've paid their dues, right? they have a right to be tired and to wish to, uh, let's say, pursue a more, I don't know, individualistic path. And if they find that the United States offers that path, fantastic. So let's set up a, um, how do you say, uh, what do you call those guys who run run uh, in a team and they pass the baton to each other? It's, it's a relay, yeah? Let's, let's set up a relay system, okay? So let's say you wanna leave Israel because you've had it, because you know the, the bus drivers are mean and, and you, the bureaucracy sucks and all that stuff. Okay, fine, whatever. Uh, in that case, help me come to Israel. Give me your housing, I'll give you mine, okay? Train me in how to survive as an Israeli. Why? Because we are an extended family, okay? And it's perfectly legitimate for you to want to go to the, the fanciest, snazziest, you know, supermarkets that the universe has. Uh, you know, I come from Mexico. I, I too was very much, you know, sort of uh, uh, impressed by the United States. Uh, but I, I, as, as, a, as a creature of Galut, I see the limits as well. And, and so, yes, there is a level at which, you know, the, the Ole has to, uh, or perspective Ole has to justify himself or herself. Like, what, what the hell are you doing? Well, you know, it's just, if, if we conceive of ourselves as a family, then some of us can, can, emphasize different aspects of our collective being, but let's do it in coordination and let's have solidarity with one another. There was another part of that question that I, th I don't think I'm addressing, the first part. Um, I asked you about the personal sacrifice. Oh, personal sacrifice. Yeah, so uh, personal sacrifices are of course evaluated very subjectively, right? So for me, uh, doing the laundry more than once a week is an enormous sacrifice. Um, for you, it might be something completely second nature. Okay, that said, I think it's fair to say that if we want to keep something that's larger than ourselves going, we have to come to terms with what that larger entity, that larger collective demands of us. 
And we have to assess to what degree we are willing to pay the price of its continuity and its flourishing. Uh, I'm not going to, to sit here and say, oh, people should do this or that. In fact, uh, there's something that kind of worries me about my, my, my verbiage so far, and that, it, and that is that I, I seem to be using words like should or shouldn't, or I seem to be conveying what people should or shouldn't do. In my role as a scholar, I really, as a secular scholar, I don't care what people do. I can only tell you what the evidence is and where it leads. I can tell you, for example, that in the United States, there are at least there, there's at least one million people of at least partial, let's say 50% Jewish origin. In other words, they have one Jewish parent who no longer consider themselves Jewish. And I know that intermarriage among non-Orthodox Jews is something close to 80%, 80, and that only a fraction of the children of intermarriages are being raised Jewishly in a in a in an un let's say uh, in a, in a, in a way that's not contradictory. Let's say you don't have you know you don't have a half Christian half Jewish person, right? Uh, which is a way of saying you know I'm I'm half pregnant or something like that. In other words, it's an impossibility in my view. Uh, so, okay, so you, you're, you're, you're tired of Israel, fine. Uh, you don't want to make the sacrifices, okay. But this is what you're facing. You're facing a very great sacrifice, right, should you wish to make it. And the sacrifice involves educating yourself and your family in the culture that you wish to preserve in a place that is geared to its extinction, right? In Israel, the situation is rather easier. Yes, the bus driver is a jerk. Yes, the bureaucracy is impossible. Yes, the standard of living is lower. But your children will speak Hebrew and you will absorb almost by osmosis layers of Jewish civilization that are not accessible even to the yeshiva bochers in New York. Why? Because the yeshiva bochas live in almost a, uh, you might say, a, 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 in an ivory tower, right? They can tell you the difference between Abaye and Rava and Rav and so forth. They, they know the ins and outs of halacha, which is, of course, a basic building block of Jewish civilization. But they don't know what it is to live as a Jew in the Middle East today. That's a big loss. So again, individuals have got to assess the degree to which they wish to sacrifice for their place, and, and not only for their place within a, within a larger culture, but for the sake of that culture. Wow, that was very, very poignant and concise. Thank you very much. I'm going to read some of the comments that we have now. Um, well, actually, we do have a question here at the top. Would you comment on the split in the meaning of the word Zionist as the left sees it? Israelis see it, and the right, like Zionist Organization of America, see it. Okay. So left and right are, are very perilous uh, labels. They actually tend to obfuscate more than they reveal. Uh, so what do we mean by left? What do we mean by right? Well, we, you know, as, as the joke goes, five Jews, seven opinions, or three Jews, five opinions. All right. There is a Zionist left. So what does the Zionist left mean by Zionism? Well, it really differs from what the anarchist left believes about Zionism. Uh, so to the right, there are, let's say, generic uh, conservatives, ultra, let's say, ultra racist conservatives or something like that. And then there's the Zionist right. Um, 
I can say the following, that there are historical grounds for making an argument about Zionism. And, uh, and in other words, there's such a thing as objective reality. Zionism at base is a political and cultural modern expression of Jewish civilization. Uh, it is specifically a secular plan of action for the realization of Jewish self-determination. In that sense, it doesn't matter what uh, Noam Chomsky has to say about Zionism being bad and evil, or what, for example, you know, the, the, what's the name of the fellow from ZOA, um, Mort, whatever his name is, what Mort has Mort to Klein. say about Zionism. Sorry? Mort Klein. Morton Klein, yeah, what Morton Klein has to say about Zionism. At, at its base, Zionism is, is very, you know, objectively, let's say, um, apprehensible. I, that really doesn't answer the question very, very well. Perhaps, perhaps the, uh, the questioner would like, Sam would like to probe, probe me further. He is, he's not with us, yeah, but not. it doesn't look like he's with us. But we do have another question, which sure. I think is a really good one. Is keeping Hebrew and Israeli culture alive really keeping Judaism alive? How does this osmosis actually ensure that Judaism still exists beyond a distinct culture and ethnicity in three generations from today? Right, it's a great question. You know, one of the, one of the outcomes of the, uh, let's say, the watershed of modernity is that in many ways, we Jews have learned to separate our ethnicity from our religion. And as I mentioned before, I really don't think on historical grounds that there is such a thing as Jewish religion. It's something that has been invented in modern times. Uh, you might say that, you know, Moses Mendelssohn began the invention of Judaism. Um, so, you know, so th there are Israelis, for example, who say, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not Jewish, I'm Israeli, right? which is a way of them saying, look, I don't like the Haredim. I don't like what they do. Uh, they believe in cows that fly and rabbis who, you know, who, 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 who levitate. And, you know, and I don't like the, the coerciveness of, uh, of the Rabbanut. Uh, and therefore, I just want to be Israeli. I, I want to go to the beach and hang out in Tel Aviv and, you know, and do what I want. Fair enough. What I would say is that Hebrew and Israeli culture are coextensive with Judaism and vice versa once we recognize the ligaments between them. If we don't know them or if we ignore them or if we want to reject them for some reason, such as hatred of the Datiyim or hatred of the Chilonim or whatever, then we're going to end up with, with Jewish um, sects, right? And it's, it's not, by the way, it's not uh, accidental that so many of my students in the United States call the Jewish denominations, sects, because they're highly ideological. They, uh, they have, let's say, standards of entry that really don't have any, any precedent in Jewish history. And they, they tend to underplay the reality of connections between Jews despite their different outlooks about, let's say, uh, halachic observance. So to answer the question, I think Israeli culture and Judaism, again, are coextensive, but we have to be conscious of how, and we have to constantly be willing to question our categories of, you know, uh, ethnicity versus religion. In fact, our civilization is unitary. Very, very interesting. Um, I'm gonna read out a couple of comments that we had from people who answered the question earlier about 
uh, how they see the, the difference in, in people. So I, so here, hold on. If I may chime in, Israeli Jews tend to understand our history, affairs, and niche from a more internalized perspective, whereas Jews from the diaspora ostensibly seem to be more informed and interested about modern Jewish history and the nitty-gritty of how minutely we constitute of the world's population, which is interesting. It's true uh, from my perspective that a lot of Jews in the diaspora are very concerned with what our numbers look like and how small we are in terms of the world, whereas Israelis, um, of course, they wouldn't have a similar worldview because they are the majority in where they are. Let me see if I have any other questions, any other uh, comments. Modern secular Israeli Jews might even have more Tanakh literacy than American Jews, but they don't have an awareness or anthropological connection to a people, a history. It's just the language they speak. The Chalutzim of the second Aliyah spoke Hebrew Bekavana. They were Yiddish or German or Russian or whatever speakers. That's very interesting. Do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, first to, uh, to Jonathan Hirsch's uh, point, I think it's a very shrewd one. Uh, look, when you are in a majority, you stop thinking about yourself so much, and that can be bad as well. If you, if you scan the web, you will find any number of interviewers going to, let's say, to college campuses in the States and asking students by showing them, a, 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 you know, let's say, a flag of the United States, how many stars are in the, on this flag? And the students who supposedly are educated people will say, you know, 52 or is it 48? Or, they don't have the slightest idea. Why? Because they stop thinking. Because being a majority is very comfortable. So whether you live in Israel as a majority or in the diaspora as a minority, I think you have to take your history very seriously and you have to become very conscious of it. One of the things that really uh, irritates me about um, life in the Galut, particularly in the American Galut, is that many Jews I know are not prepared to have uh, adult Jewish identities. Their Jewish, their formal Jewish education at least ends at the age of 13 or 12, and then they, they drift away. And then when they realize, boy, I'm an adult, they realize that the, the Judaism, the quote-unquote Judaism to which they were introduced was a childish Judaism. Well, of course it is. In order to develop an adult Jewish identity, you have to study history. I hate to say it because, you know, I'm a historian, so I have a, I have a vested interest in this. But you have to study Jewish culture and Jewish history more or less systematically and seriously. You have to know all of its complexity. Look, we have 3,000 plus years of history. It's very interesting. It's deeply multi-layered. There's no dearth of interesting subjects. So find a hook into the subject and dive in. Um, the other question or the other comment was about, I forget. Uh, the one that I just read? Yeah, the, the last one you read? It was... Um... It was from Ruven about um, about needing. To, I think it was from Ruven about uh, if Israel needs to exist. No, he put two. He talked about Tanakh literacy and uh -huh. how he uh, Israeli people know so much more than they oh, right. might uh, notice on the surface. I agree. I agree. Uh, so, you know, if you're a Hebrew speaker, you absorbed a lot of the sayings of your uh, of your Hebrew speaking uh ancestors right and and you may not realize just as americans don't realize how much they're indebted to uh to shakespeare israeli hebrew speakers don't understand how indebted they are to the tanakh and to the rabbinic canon so again 
look, I have to make my <laughs> my um, uh, professional appeal, right, <laughs> for the study of history. Uh, it is true that when you're in a diaspora and you want to cultivate uh, your culture, you tend to be very conscious of it. Um, but again, as I said, in response to the last, uh, to the other question, I think it's necessary to acquire consciousness regardless of whether you're in a minority or, or a majority, lest you start to detach, uh, you know, various layers of meaning from one another. Um, I, I'm not suggesting that everybody should become a Tanakh scholar, I'm not, but uh, it, it is very instructive, for example, to, let's say, to find your name, your Hebrew name, in the canon. Right. I mean, it, that's a that's a way of of, uh, of of in a sense of realizing your own rootedness. What's canon? And the canon, meaning not the not the piece of artillery, but the group of authoritative texts that comprise, you know, classic Jewish literature. Uh, canon, a canon that explodes two ends in the middle. The canon that I'm talking about has one end. So. Um, you know, I, I had, a, I had a, an interviewee who uh, spent much of his youth uh, hanging around radicals, and eventually he found himself uh, more or less spit out by these radicals as, as, a, as a Jew, right? They, they discriminated against him. And uh, it was very late in life that he realized that his, his Hebrew name, Aharon, was actually a biblical name. And he says, the moment that I, that I read that for the first time, it's as though 2,000 years of, or more of Jewish history downloaded into my brain, right? So I think it's important to keep, uh, I, with Hoven, and I think this is implicit in the question, I, I, I agree that this is an important uh, task, right? To, 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 to be conscious, again, to be mindful, if you'll pardon the, uh, uh, the trendy phrase, uh, to be mindful of our rootedness in, in Jewish culture. Thank you, and uh, I couldn't agree more with your Shakespeare line. I'm I'm studied in Shakespeare, and uh, a lot of people don't know that so many phrases and parts of vernacular come from Shakespeare. For example, not being able to wash the blood off your hands, Macbeth. Um, you know, all of these. It, it's it, linguistically, it's very interesting. So I'm going to ask you the last question of the night, which is coming from Rabbi Feldman. So we know that it's going to be a good one. And it goes back to the moment that we, that you were discussing about um, sort of needing to prove your value, being good, being bad, Bernie Madoff. Jews don't have to be good, but Judaism, Torah challenges us, Judaism and Torah challenges us to strive to be good. And it also values education. That is why we glorify Jews who are good and who have contributed intellectually or scientifically to the world. So are these not more Jewish values that we focus on because they are Jewish? Isn't what is unique about us that the identity is wrapped up with the content of our beliefs and our ideas? Yeah, 100%. Listen, I'm not making an argument that Jews should not strive to be good or that somehow goodness is not embedded in, in Jewish ethics, traditional or, or you know, classic Jewish ethics and even modern Jewish ethics, quite the contrary. What I, what I really don't, what, what makes me uncomfortable is the notion that we have to externalize our self-perceived goodness and use it as a means to justify ourselves vis-a-vis -vis umot haolam. Umot haolam 
have their own standards. We don't necessarily have to, you know, uh, meet them or, or uh, pay lip service to them or anything like that. If we want to be good, we have every right to be good by our standards. But notice how our tradition, I mean, here I am lecturing to a rabbi, right? But notice how our tradition uh, envelops the notion of righteousness in two aspects. Number one, obligation. And number two, selflessness and concern for the collective, right? We are not good because we, because if we give tzedakah, somebody's going to put a big plaque or in, in, in our synagogue that says, this good Jew gave us a lot of mullah, right? The, uh, the ideal of tzedakah is you throw the money behind your back and you don't care who picks it up and you don't look backwards and you don't try to say, aha, I'm good, I'm great. Aren't I great? Look at me. I'm worthy of political rights. No. Okay. The second aspect, obligation. Righteousness, as I understand it, in the Tanakh and elsewhere, has less to do with any kind of, uh, you know, universal moral philosophy than it has to do with a very specific historical relationship. And that is the historical relationship between a deity and its nation, right? We don't do what we're told to do because we have absorbed it philosophically and have evaluated its worth as if in a kind of intellectual vacuum. We are told, do this. And what do we respond? Right? In other words, we're not doing philosophy here. We're not doing ethics in the Greco-Roman sense. We are simply doing our part in a contract. And that contract is the, creates the, the dynamic tension that results in Judaic particularism and, yes, Judaic universalism. By no means am I saying don't be good or goodness is somehow, you know, besides the point I'm saying is you're good on your own terms. Don't go around flaunting that you're good or trying to prove that you're good. If you're good, you know it. Relax. Excellent. Thank you so much. That is so great. Um, everyone, thanks so much for being here. I think this was really inspiring and uh, opened up some... Turned on some light bulbs for me in here. <laughs> Thanks so much, everyone. Um, Thank you all. I'm sorry I, I was so, you know, so vehement and adamant. Maybe I would have liked to hear more from people, but uh, you can always reach me by, by email. Uh, if, if my book is out of reach in terms of your budget, please let me know. I'll send you a coupon and uh, we can go from there. But thank you, uh, Rabbi Feldman. Thank you, Shana, for, for leading this so elegant. for joining us. Thank you, Shana, for moderating. Absolutely. We, and, uh, um, David, could you repeat the name of your book? Yeah, it's called The New Zionists. And uh, it's available from Roman and Littlefield. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, the, the price is ridiculous. I, it was not my fault. But uh, yeah, I have a coupon that I can send for 30% off. Eventually, it'll come out as an ebook, a little bit less expensive. And if you're really hard, hard pressed, I can send you the page proofs. I mean, just between us, and um, you know, and uh, enjoy and debate it, and you know, disagree, agree, and engage. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. Laila Tov. Thank you, David. Have a good night.